to begin, uh, you may be seated, God bless you. We're going to begin a series this evening that I feel like the Lord has been prompting me for the last several weeks, and uh, it'll take us, for the most part, we're going to go verse by verse uh, through the book of First Peter and possibly even Second Peter. I've got a really creative title for the series. So my creative juices were flowing today. When <laughs> so it's going to be called First Peter. So we're just going to dig into it. The problem I have, the problem I have with ver- verse-by-verse studies is... It's my intention to get through a chapter, and I, I don't know that, you know, it's a difficult thing for me to get through like three verses. There's so much stuff in the Word of the Lord, and, and I have a hard time just skipping over stuff, and, and I just want to dig into all of it. <clears throat> but, uh, but God's going to help us. God's going to help us. We understand we're probably not going to dig every nugget out of these books but uh, we'll do our best, and we'll be spirit-led, and let the Lord help us. And so tonight, we're, uh, we might get to a, a, a few verses in the first chapter, but I want to kind of look at the introduction of First Peter and, and um, kind of just an intro to this book. But So the writer of the book is Peter, for he, he begins uh, the book with these words, First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. You have your Bibles right off the start. He says, I'm Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout. And then he lists different places where they were scattered about. So we see that Peter was the one that God used to carry out the writings. I mean, no, it was holy men of old that wrote as the Holy Ghost moved upon them. And so we understand that the, the people who wrote the books were not writing from their own thinking. They were not writing from their own thought processes, uh, but they were simply scribes. They were simply uh, the ones, as God was telling them what to write, moving upon them what to write, inspiring them what to write, uh, they, they were simply writing the words of the Lord. And so here we find in this book of First Peter that it was Peter that God was choosing to use to carry out these writings. And then we see who he was writing to, for he was writing to the strangers scattered throughout those different lands. Now, it's important that we understand that that word strangers doesn't, doesn't really mean uh, what the connotation of what you and I would think it would mean. For when we think of strangers, we think of people that you don't know, right? You think of a stranger. I don't, I don't know who they are. You know, I, I'm not invested in their life. I don't know what's going on in their life. I don't, I don't have a clue about what's, what's happening in their life. But that's not what that word strangers there means. That word strangers is simply speaking of someone who has moved from their place of birth, who has moved from their native land, if you can say it like that, and they are now residing in a new place. They are now residing in a new home or a new land or a new territory. Does that make sense? And so from this description, we see 
that Peter is here writing, uh, and, and as you study it and as we get into the next few verses, you'll find that he is writing here to his fellow Christians. These weren't strangers as we would think them to be strangers, but these were his fellow Christians who had to flee in fear from their native land, from Jerusalem, from, uh, from that place because of the persecution that was coming against them. And so here you have this group of people from Jerusalem, originally from Jerusalem where the Holy Ghost was poured out, but because now they are who they are and Christians and, and, and believers of the name, they, persecution is coming against them, of which we're going to read about in just a moment. And as persecution comes against them, they no longer feel safe, uh, as we'll read uh, in just a moment. They no longer feel safe in the city, and so they leave, and they spread out to all those different areas, all of those different lands. And so Paul... Paul is writing to those persecuted Christians, uh, and he calls them strangers simply because they had to leave their homeland because of persecution. This persecution of which we speak tonight is recorded in the book of Acts when it says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, this gives us a, 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 just a snippet of, of what was taking place. The Bible says in Acts 8 and 1, and Saul was consenting unto his death. Now we know Saul was later changed to Paul and, and, and what a wonderful miracle that happened and and that was but but just because one man Saul was changed to Paul and stopped persecuting Christians doesn't mean everybody stopped persecuting Christians okay and so it continued on so what happened here was a snippet of what was happening all throughout the land and it says and Saul was consenting unto his death speaking of Stephen and at the time there was a great persecution against the church with that which is at Jerusalem and so they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So here we find again, here, so here we see, this is who Paul or Peter was writing to. Because of their great persecution, they were forced to leave their homes. I just want you to, I want you to, how I many know sometimes we read the word of the Lord, but we don't really understand what these individuals were facing. And so it's important that you understand what they're going through and, and the context of, of the text and of the story and of the book. And so here were these individuals who, because of this great persecution that they were receiving, because they were Jesus-named people, they were forced to leave their homes, they were forced to leave their jobs, they were forced to leave their farms, they were forced to leave even family members, and they had to flee into, the, into these parts of the country where they, 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 they didn't know it. They didn't know these cities. They didn't know, this, they didn't know any of it. But they had to flee or else they were going to die. Peter would later speak of what they were going through. And, and he speaks of them having to endure fiery trials. He speaks of, of what they were facing here in another way. He, he says, you're going through a trial of your faith. Anybody ever had to go through a trial of your faith? Notice now, he's not writing to people who were just having a bad morning. He's not just writing to those who were having a, a, a little setback in their life. They hit a little road bump. 
He's not, he's not writing to people like that. He's writing to people who, because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, were now afraid for their very own lives. And it wasn't some uh, erratic fear. They saw family members killed, family members ripped from their homes, taken and thrown into prison. He was, he was writing to people who, who believed that because Jesus was the Messiah, he was writing to people who, who literally had their own sons and daughters and mothers and fathers ripped from their homes and murdered and thrown into prison for believing and preaching in and loving the name of Jesus. So just know, just know, as, as you think about this, just know that no matter what you and I might be facing today, no matter what you and I might be going through today, if this particular book of our Bibles can be an encouragement and a strength and insight to Christians that Peter was dealing with, then I just believe that it can be an encouragement and a strength to you and I today. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's too many of us that are dealing on the same level as what these people are dealing with. And so my point is, is if this book can help them, this book can help us as well. Hear me now. The only people, the only people who say that the word of the Lord, not necessarily even just First Peter, but the word of the Lord, the people who say the word of the Lord isn't relevant to the situation that I'm facing. The only ones who say that are the ones who aren't reading the book. Because it's impossible to read the book and study the book and dig into the book about your personal issue and struggle and come away saying, that book's not relevant for my living. It's impossible. But I've come to teach that this book does give direction. And this book does give strength to every single person, no matter what we're facing, no matter what kind of trial we're going in, no matter if it's a trial of our faith or a fiery trial, I'm here to tell somebody the word of the Lord has the answers that we need. Come on, if you're going through a tough time in your life, this book will see you through that. And this book will show you the way. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. The book says it like this in Psalms 119 verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction. For the word, the word hath quickened me. That word quickened there means bring to bring life. So the psalmist is telling us that we can take comfort in knowing that in our affliction, the word of the Lord is going to bring life. Oh, hallelujah. In the middle of our sorrow, the word of the Lord is going to bring life. In the middle of our dark days, the word of the Lord is going to bring life. Come on, don't let the enemy convince you that this book is antiquated, that it's outdated, and that it doesn't have the ability to meet the needs of our current issues. For in looking at our text, we find that in the moment of our forefathers, our brothers and sisters uh, that were being persecuted and dealing with stuff that most all of us in this room have never dealt with in our life. Peter knew that what his fellow Christians needed uh, was a word from the Lord. 
That's what they needed. So if you're facing the darkest night of your life, stop trying to figure things out on your own. Stop trying to figure things out on your own. Get into the book. Get on your knees with the book and ask God to give you revelation about how this book is applicable to your life. Can I get a witness in the house of somebody who knows that book helped me through the darkest time of my life? Uh, some people will throw it up on a coffee shelf or put, uh, you know, a coffee table or put it up on a shelf. But I understand there's life in that book. Uh, there's life in that book. Uh, there's life in that book. I'm going to get in that book. I'm going to study that book. Because I need a word from the Lord. And so this is who he's writing to. And this is what they're going through. And what they're going through, the greatest thing that they needed was a word from the Lord. And so what I found, what I found, Brother Lamont, I found so inspiring and, and, to be honest, more than a little convicting, is that Peter was most likely writing this book of encouragement to his fellow Christians who were going through all this stuff. He was writing it during the reign of, of an individual by the name of of Emperor Nero in 64 AD. This is about the time that he's writing this encouragement to his fellow believers during the reign of, of Nero. And that's amazing to me because the most commonly accepted church tradition is, it, it doesn't, it's not recorded in the scripture, but the church tradition and historians tell us the most commonly accepted church tradition is that it was the emperor Nero that had Peter martyred. Peter, Peter was put to death for what he believed. Peter was put to death for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and the tradition is, is that he, he also was going to be crucified. But the tradition says that, that Peter said, no, I, I cannot be crucified like Jesus was. And, and, and so they crucified him upside down. Because there was no way he felt worthy to be crucified like his Savior. And it was the Emperor Nero that gave the edict, gave the, the command for Peter to be put to death. And the biblical historians, the biblical historians that I read said that Peter, stay with me, that Peter was put to death just shortly after writing First and Second Peter. I don't know if it was weeks or months, but it, it, was just, it, was, it was just shortly after writing this book of First Peter and Second Peter that Peter was put to death by Nero. So here we see, think now, here we see his willingness to minister to other people, to allow himself to be a conduit for the Lord to work through him, to minister to other people, even though he was going through an intense trial himself. That would eventually lead in just a short time after finishing the books to his own death. 
His love for people was so great that he was willing to minister to other people, bring strength to other people, encourage other people, even during the worst trial of his own life. Now, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. But I prayed today as I was studying this and as God was speaking to me, I prayed today that in the moment of my greatest trials, that God would help me to not get to the place where it all becomes about me. For if we're honest, many times when we get into the trials of our faith, our world becomes all about me. For it's during the tough times that we see just how much selfishness and self-centeredness resides within us. And I feel the Holy Ghost asking someone, are you still available for God to use you to bless somebody else even though you're going through a dark time tonight? Do we love others enough that we would strengthen them and encourage them and lift them up even when we ourselves are going through a difficult, tumultuous trial. I'm not saying we should neglect our own spiritual, emotional, or physical health. I'm not saying we should just neglect all of those things. I'm not saying that I don't even know that everyone can even, could even do what Peter did. I don't know on that level. But there is a quality, and this, this might not be for everybody, and I, and I hope I say this right, but there is a quality to those who would rise to greatness in the kingdom of God like Peter did. They have a quality about them, multiple qualities really, but there's one specific quality as it relates to what we're talking about right now that causes them to be able to be used by God in great and marvelous ways. And that quality is the ability to serve others even during rough times. So, to those who believe God is calling you to do something great, we need to stop feeling sorry for ourselves when things don't go the way we wanted them to go. Mm. If God is calling you with a high calling, then our focus shouldn't always be on what happened to me in my past and what, what so-and-so did to me in my yesterdays and what they said or what they did or the actions against me or how I feel or what I think or 
Well, you just don't know my upbringing. You just don't know my parents. Or you just don't know my story. Or you just don't know my finances. Or you just don't know my job. Or, or you just don't know what I'm going through. Or you just don't know what I'm facing at home. My friend, I'm trying to tell you, there is a quality to somebody who would rise to greatness in the kingdom of God. And that quality is somebody that can go through the storms. And in the middle of the storms, trust that God's going to help you. But also believe, who can I minister to? Everybody can't do it. I realize it. I realize everybody's not at that place. And that's why everybody doesn't rise to greatness. But if you're in the house and you want to rise to great heights in the things of God, you need to develop a characteristic that that gets you to the point where it's not all about you all the time. Where there's something within you that says, I'm willing to sacrifice I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to sacrifice so that somebody else can be strengthened. I'm willing to sacrifice so that somebody else can be blessed. I'm willing to sacrifice because at the end of the day, it's not necessarily about me. The Apostle Paul would say it like this in Philippians 3.13, Brother, and I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto the things which are before. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And I just feel to tell somebody in the Holy Ghost that it's time for you to stop focusing on yourself and realize that it's time to press towards the calling of God that is on your life. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost right now. I'm here to tell somebody, listen, you've, you've focused on yourself long enough. You've focused on what you had to give up in order to get to where God's called you to be. You've focused on the sacrifice. You've looked at everything you had to sacrifice to be where you are. It's time to stop looking at the sacrifice and start saying, I'm forgetting about those things. And I'm pressing, I'm pressing, I'm pressing towards the mark. I'm pressing towards the call of God that is upon my Come on, somebody give him praise right now. Oh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. As long as you keep reminiscing about what you had to sacrifice to get to where you are, you're never going to move beyond the point where you currently reside. But if you could forget about the things which are behind and start pressing, you're going to start walking in a newness of calling. Somebody said amen. Peter saw his own death creeping up on him. And yet he didn't lament it. He didn't talk about how bad he had it. He didn't talk about the fact that I'm about to die myself. And yet I got to deal with you people. I got to strengthen you and you're weak and I got to lift you up all the time. And No. He saw his own death creeping up on him and he just went ahead and put his pen to parchment because he wanted to be a blessing to someone else. I'm not belittling or saying the word for that matter. I'm not belittling anyone's trial tonight. 
I'm simply asking you to guard against the tendency that all of us have from time to time, which is to put the focus on us during the time of trials when there are hurting people that God wants us to minister to. And the church said, although 1 Peter is a short letter, it, it, it touches on various doctrines and has much to say about Christian life and Christian living and Christian duties, duties and Christian callings. For example, this, as you read the book, it, 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 it speaks of separation, it speaks of suffering, it speaks of persecution. But it also speaks of glory and it speaks of hope and it speaks of pilgrimage and courage and holiness and righteousness and the true grace of God and on and on and on the list goes. And, and I want you to remember that as we get into this book and as we start uh, reading about and, 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 and seeing Peter speaking of all of those biblical truths and all of those biblical realities and all of those biblical doctrines, remember He's speaking to people who are going through the worst trials of their life. Which tells me this. Even in trial, we should still be faithful. For he speaks of faithfulness to the people that are scattered abroad saw their own fathers killed, saw their own mothers ripped from their homes and placed into prison, away from their homeland, their farm, and all this kind of stuff. And in the middle of that, he's speaking to them, and he's saying, listen, we still should be faithful. <laughs> Even in trials, we should be holy. Oh, hallelujah. Even in trials, we should be separate from the world. Even in trials, we should be steadfast. Even in trials, we should have a revelation of God's goodness and of God's glory. Even in trials, now hear me, even in trials, we should grow in the knowledge of God. How do you expect me to grow? I'm in the trial of my life. Yeah, well, so were these people. And I would venture to say their trial was probably a little bit worse. And yet Peter says... God speaking through Peter, I know where you are, but there's still some stuff I want you to grow in. You see, the Lord didn't think that their trials exempted them from spiritual growth. And God didn't think that their trials exempted them from biblical obedience. And he didn't think about it for them, and he doesn't think that way about you and I either. So we need to hear me very carefully. We need to stop using our trial as a reason for why we can't move forward in the things of God. We must stop using our fiery trials as a reason for why we cannot move forward in our relationship with God. Mm. And, I, and I'll tell you why. Because if that is the pattern of our life, you will stay in a trial. Because the enemy sees the enemy knows 
And the enemy realizes that they exempt themselves from spiritual growth when trial comes their way. So I'm just going to make sure that they live in perpetual trial. It's like, it's like the individual that, you know, has a, has a sniffle or a little, a little something wrong with them. But for some reason, it only hits them on Thursday at, you know, 6 o'clock p.m. It's, ama- it's amazing to me. I get the reports, you know, you know we, we reach out to people that aren't here and pray for them if they miss a Sunday and we you know, kind of find out what's going on. We don't want to miss somebody. And, and, I, and I, I see the reports and the reasons that some people give for not being here. And it's amazing. The miraculous power of God, Pastor Rima. Come Monday morning, man, everything's perfect and well. And they're able, see how quiet it got right here? We're going to go to work. Man, God, we, man, let's rejoice in the miracle power of God. So <laughs> let that sink in right there. Well, what is that? What is that? The devil understands. The devil's seeing. I, I'm not saying the devil can make you sick. I, I, I don't know that I believe that. But I'm just saying, if the devil sees certain patterns in your life, he's going to work in your life so that those patterns can continue to be repeated. An individual that just knows that Thursday I'm in church, Sunday I'm in church, Wednesday, you know, whatever, it's so very hard for the devil to mess with somebody like that because it's never an option. It's never an option. You see, we need to get to the place where faithfulness is not an option. Mm. Hallelujah. And so because when you get to that place, the enemy knows I don't have a door there. I don't have a, I tried that door, doesn't work. I got to try something different on this guy because that door doesn't work. He's going to be faithful. She's going to be faithful. And so we understand that in the times of our trials, we can grow. And it's the will of God for us to grow. And I got to hurry. It's the will of God for us to grow. We need to stop allowing our time of struggle to be the excuse we give for not praying and not reading our Bibles and not being faithful to the house of God. Well, I would have prayed, but, you know, I'm just going through so much. And I would have prayed, but, you know, I I got all this stuff going on, and and I I just didn't have time to read my Bible. I'm dealing with this, and I'm dealing with that, and I'm trying to figure out this, that, and the other. And so I don't have time to go to the book of Answers. We need to stop using that which has come against us to be the reason why we can't grow and flourish and excel. Who said you can't move forward in the things of God in the middle of a storm? Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. The word of the Lord says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Now listen, he wouldn't be saying that if they were going through good times. 
If he's saying be unmovable, it's, it's, he's probably dealing with some people that are going through some stuff where the storms are rocking them a little bit. And so he's, he's speaking to some people that are going through some stuff. And he says, be ye steadfast and, and, and be unmovable. And then what does he say? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's not just telling us to abound, that we can grow and abound when everything's well. It's not saying that we, should, we can only abound when, you know, nobody's sick and we got all kinds of money in the bank and, you know, the car's driving fine. No, he's saying always abound, whether it's in good times or bad times, when you have money, don't have money, when you're sick or you're well. He said in all of those things, we can always be abounding. And the reason is this, for it'll be the very things, hear me very carefully, it'll be the very things that we are tempted to let go of in times of difficulty that will be the things that keep us if we'll hang on to them. The very things necessary to be steadfast and unmoving. The very things necessary that we need in our lives to keep us planted and firm in the things of God are going to be the very things that we are tempted to let go of in the time of storm. But if we'll keep praying, even when we don't feel like it, that prayer is going to see us through. And if we'll keep reading God's word, even when we can barely see the pages because the tears are streaming down our face because of the pain that is in our life, then just know that it's going to be God's word that gives us what we need to make it through. So keep on being faithful to God's house when everything else is telling you to stay home. Keep being faithful to your ministry when all you want to do is lock yourself up in a room and cry. Keep lifting your hands in praise and worship to the Lord even when everything in your life is not going the way you want it to go. Keep on dancing when you don't feel like dancing. Keep on shouting when you don't feel like shouting. Keep on giving when you don't feel like giving. Keep on sacrificing when you don't feel like sacrificing. Because why? It'll be our faithfulness in the doing of those things that will bring us through the storms of life. Why do you think the enemy is trying so desperately to get you to stop doing the things? He's trying so desperately to get you to stop doing those things because he knows it's those things that will bring you through the storm. The word of the Lord says it like this, Psalms 31 and 23, Oh, love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful. Psalms 101 verse 6, Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. God says, He said, want to know who's going to dwell close to me and be in close proximity to who I am? Faithful people. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 20, a faithful man shall abound with blessings. Do you see why the enemy of your soul tries to get us to become unfaithful in this area or that area or the other area? The reason is because he knows that a faithful man will abound in blessing and he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Oh, hallelujah. So the enemy of your soul wants you to let down some things in the middle of your mess. 
Because he knows those are going to be the things that preserve you, keep you close to God, and cause you to be blessed. Hallelujah. So, somebody said amen. So Peter wrote the book. He wrote it to fellow Christians who were being persecuted so that they could be encouraged and continue to grow in the faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, let's look at it again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Now watch verse 2. We've got to verse 2. It's going to be a long series. <laughs> elect. Somebody say elect. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now we're going to almost want to deal with something here. Just give insight and in, in, in understanding of God's word. We need to look closely at this verse because there's a belief that some have, and maybe some of you have dealt with it, maybe some of you have heard of it, been confronted with it, read things on it, whatever. A belief that is in the Christian, you know, the umbrella of Christianity and Christian denominations. They would believe this belief and, and this teaching, this so-called doctrine, and, and it, is, it is called the doctrine of predestination. Anybody ever heard of that? Doctrine of predestination. There's a, there's a, there's a, a, a strong sect of Christians called Calvinists. And this is a major dogma of what they preach and what they teach and what they believe. And this, this doctrine of predestination states that God foreordains everything that happens. Especially in regards to those who will be saved and those who will not be saved. So, so they would believe that if God has chosen you to be saved, then you are destined to be saved and you will be in heaven no matter what. Because that's how God ordained it and foreordained it, predestined for your life to turn out. But if God has not chosen you, then there is nothing you could do about it. For you will never have a heart for the things of God and you'll end up in hell for that's how God ordained for it to be. Predestination. And that belief, in part, is taken from the verse that we just read. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. This is maybe where they would pull some of their belief from. Notice what it says. The elect. The elect. Now, it's talking, who's it talking about? It's talking about the church, the elect, the people of God, the saints, the elect, who are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So those that would believe in predestination would say that this verse is telling us that these individuals have been ordained, they have been predestined by the foreknowledge of God to be a part of the elect or to be a part of the church. 
It wasn't really their choice. They didn't really have much of a uh, much to do with it or about it. It was simply the fact that God had already, from before time even existed, before they were ever even born, foreordained for them to be a part of the elect. Predestination. Another verse that they would use. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So the Calvinists would say that the only ones who can be conformed into the image of the Lord or the image of of, of Jesus would be those who have been predestinated by God to do so. And if you have not been predestinated by God to become like Christ, then there's nothing you can do about it. You will never become like Christ. Another verse they would use is this, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And so here we find again that they would use this verse to say that it is purely the will of God that chooses who will be predestinated to go to heaven and who will be predestinated to go to hell. Just the will of God, whatever God decides. But here's the thing. I don't want any of us to be confused by this doctrine. I do not want any of us to be confused by what this word predestinated means. For here's why. It's obviously in the Bible. Right? So we can't say, oh, predestination, uh, you know, because it's, it's in the Bible. But how many know the Bible is not, the, God is not the author of confusion? It's very Siri, what does predestination mean? No. <laughs> it's, it's in the Bible. That's the first time that's ever happened to me. But it does not mean what the Calvinists say that it means. And it does not mean what the others might say it means. For here's what you need to remember. When you look at this word, when you read this word in Scripture, when it talks about people being predestinated or things, uh, the church being predestinated, or you hear people talking about predestination, here's what you remember. Here's what you need to remember. God did not predestinate individuals, but he did predestinate a church. God did not predestinate who would be in the church, but he did predestinate the fact that there would be a church. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Now, that's exciting to me. So I don't want, anybody, I don't want any of you ever to be confused about that. You need to understand what that means. If anybody talks to you, you read something, you're confused about that verse, that's That is how, that's what the truth is as it applies to that particular word. We know God didn't predestinate some to be in the church and others not to be in the church. God did not predetermine for some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. For the book says this, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise 
as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, that, but that all should come to repentance. Now, if God predetermined and predestinated people that you can repent and be saved, but you can't, then why does the word of the Lord say that it is his will that nobody should perish and that everyone should come to repentance? Why? Because predestinate is not talking about an individual. Predestinate is talking about the church of the living God. It's God's will for everybody to come to repentance. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Whosoever will. You're not predestined to do it. If you're thirsty, whosoever will is, doesn't sound at all like God choosing some people. And rejecting other people, but it sounds like a God who desires everyone, whosoever will, to drink of the water of life freely. And look again at what the verse says. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Now, I need your minds just a bit, a bit here. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. So it's, it's talking about the elect, the church, who was in the foreknowledge of God, preordained, knowing there was going to be a church. Now, how did they get to be the elect? Through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience to the word of the Lord and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, notice, notice, there are three things here that are determiners for being a part of the elect. You either are obedient to those. Now, how plain does it get? You either do those things and you're a part of the elect or you don't do those things and you're not a part of the elect. It has nothing to do with God choosing you or not choosing you. These are the determining factors. And what are they? Sanctification of the Spirit, obedience, and application of the blood of Jesus. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, 5, Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water. What happens at the water? The blood of Jesus Christ is applied to our life and of the Spirit, the sanctification of the Spirit. And we are obedient to both of those things. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's how you get into the kingdom of God. It's not because God chooses you or doesn't choose you. It's because you're obedient to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And we are obedient to repent of our sins and baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ where the blood of Jesus Christ is, comes upon us for the washing away of our sins. And that we are sanctified by the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit of God, with the evidence of speaking with other tongues. And then when that happens, we get into the kingdom of God. We become a part of the ecclesia. We become a part of the called out ones. We become a part of the elect. We become a part of the church. Oh, hallelujah. How many are thankful that the gospel message is for everybody? Come on, how many are thankful that Jesus Christ died for everybody? How many are thankful that the salvation, this great and glorious and wonderful salvation is for whosoever will? 
Come on, is there anybody glad it was available to you and you and you and you and you? Is there anybody glad God isn't choosing? You can be saved, but you cannot be saved. So that every one of us in the room had the ability to come and humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and bring our sin and our trials and our problems and repent of that sin, be baptized in the name and filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Somebody said amen. So we see that it was the church in its entirety that was predestined by God and not the individuals that made up the church. That's why the book says this in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. See, this is why I can't get through a whole chapter because I just... Revelation 13 and verse 8, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life, watch, of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now this is speaking of Jesus and it says that he was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world was even established in the mind of God, in the foreknowledge of God, he had already robed himself in flesh and shed his blood for a lost world. Predetermined that. Predestinated that reality. God understood what sin was going to do and what man was going to do. And so before he ever created the world and the men to fail, he already ordained himself to take upon the form of man so that blood could be shed and sins could be forgiven and mankind that he loves could be restored back to right relationship with him. So what? So that the church could be purchased. So that the church could be purchased. What did he do at the cross? He purchased the reality of the church. When did he do that? It wasn't at the cross. It was before time even began. Oh, hallelujah. He foreordained, he predestinated Calvary where he would shed his blood for lost humanity. That's why the book says this in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you an overseer to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. When was the blood shed? It was shed at Calvary. When was the knowledge that the blood was going to be shed? Before time even existed. He purchased the church. It was foreordained in his mind. It was predestinated. Not the people in the church, but the reality of the church. Oh, hallelujah. Somebody said amen if you believe that. And so here's the thing, since God has, now this is, this is good. Since God has predestined and predetermined for there to be a church, then, then there will always be a church. Whether I'm in it or you're in it or we're not in it. <laughs> there will always be a church. Oh, hallelujah. It hasn't happened often. 
but from time to time in almost 20 years of pastoring, I've had people that thought that when they left, the church was going to fold. Now, I know we're talking here about a local congregation, but I've had people who really thought that because of who they were and because of the money that they gave, that when they left the church, that the church was just going to fold up and die. Let me tell you something. The church has been predestined. <laughs> and there's not a thing you can do about it. And there's not a thing I can. Now, we can choose to be a part of it or not a part of it. But there's going to be a church. As much as hell might not want it to be so, there will always be a church. <laughs> As much as our society may mock it, as much as our culture may disparage it, as much as they may ridicule us, I'm here to tell you there will always be a church. And it's not going to be a weak church. I said it's not going to be a dying church. It's not going to be a quiet church. It's going to be a powerful church. It's going to be a miraculous church. It's going to be a church that's on fire. If I'm a part of it or you're a part of it, we have the ability to make that decision. But that doesn't mean that the church is not going to keep going forward in power and in passion and in love. My friend, the church, the church has lasted through wars. It's lasted through debates. It's lasted through false doctrine. It's lasted through pastors and saints that have done dumb things. And there's nothing that this world and there's nothing that present society and there's nothing that current culture can do about it. There will always be a church because it's been predestined by God. Oh, hallelujah. That's just exciting to me. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church has been predestined to be a powerful reality on this earth. And there's nothing hell can do to stop that. Is there anybody glad you're a part of the church? Come on, is there, is, you just feel something. I just feel something. I'm, not, I'm a part of something. Now listen, I love the local church, and I love my brothers and sisters in here, but how many know this church is a whole lot bigger than the Pentecostal church in Harvey and Spanish campus and Homewood Flossmore campus and Manuka campus and Freedom campus? How many know it's a whole lot bigger than all of our campuses? My friend, there's, there's churches all over the world I said there's thousands upon millions upon millions upon millions of tongue-talking, Jesus' name, born-again, holy living people that know hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. And they're just like us, and they believe just like us, and they love the truth just like us. Why? Because there will always be a church. And I'm glad I'm a part of it. Let me, let me just, let me show you what I'm talking about as it applies to hell's inability to stop the church. That God is predestined to be a powerful reality on this earth. In the first book of our Bibles in Genesis, you find 
without going to the whole story, but you find Satan in the form of a serpent slithering up to Eve, lying to Eve, tricking her. Eventually, through that whole process, both Adam and Eve partake in disobedience of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord had told them, out of every other tree you you can eat in the garden, just don't eat of this one. And Satan says, yeah, it's all right, go ahead and do it. So they believe the lie, Eve did, and they partake of the fruit. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I wasn't there, but I'm pretty sure that at this point, the devil was probably thinking he had been victorious. Okay? There's two people on the whole face of the earth, and he just got them both to fail. He's, he's batting a 1,000 right now. There's nobody else for him to destroy. He's batting a 1,000. So he's probably feeling pretty good about himself. Like, hey, hey, I fixed that little thing. You know, I fixed that little problem. Humanity, I just fixed that. I just got him to sin. just got him to fail. They have just relinquished their power and authority. Whole another Bible study. We've talked about it before. So he's feeling pretty good. But what Satan didn't understand is that when God predestines something, There's nothing hell can do to stop it, even though he thinks he has stopped it. So now you got Adam and Eve, and they start having some some kids. They start having some boys, and hell probably isn't even taking notice at all about these boys. And if he is, he's for sure not taking notice about what their names are. He said, I got this thing fixed. And so boys keep coming and names keep given, be given to these boys. And so here we find in Scripture, you'll find the first ten men that are listed in Scripture. The genealogy of Adam, from Adam on down. And here's, here's who they are, those ten men, first ten men. Adam. Seth, Enosh, Kenan, if you're looking for baby names, listen, Mahalalel, (laughs) Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Now, so these were the first ten names in the genealogy, the first men that, 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 that were born and grew. These are the names. Now, Now let me, stay with me, let me show you what the meaning of those names are when they are transliterated into our English language. Okay? Adam, his name when transliterated into English language is is the word that means man. Seth means appointed, declared. Enish means mortal or fleshly. Kenan means sorrow or painful. Mahilalel means the blessed God. Jared means the coming down or shall come down. Enoch means to teach or to expound. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means those who despair or the despairing ones. And Noah's name means rest or comfort. So now let's put all of those names together, the transliterated into English version of those names. And when you put all of that together, here's what you get. Without adding any other words, here's what you get. 
man appointed mortal, mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest and comfort. Woo. Here we see God making a summary of his plan of redemption and he hides it in a passage of scripture that most all of us skip over. <laughs> Come on, just be honest. You get to the genealogies and it's, you, get, you get through them things quick. And we just skip over it and we don't realize that God has hidden in those names a, a plan of redemption. And he did so in order to let everybody know who cared to look that what he has predestinated is going to become in fact a reality. And it doesn't matter what the devil did and it doesn't matter what Adam did and what Eve did. God said it's not over. I predestinated for there to be a redemptive church. I predestinated for there to be a lively church and it's still going to come to pass. My redemption is going to purchase the church and what hell did in the garden cannot stop it. Woo! I'm glad to be a part of the church. Somebody said amen. I'm, I'm hurrying, I'm hurrying. I'm, let, me, let me show it to you like this. For many years, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm coming down. For many years, Christianity was outlawed by the Roman government. This is, you know, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years ago. It was, it was outlawed by the Roman government. And many of, their, many of their efforts were directed at destroying the Bible. If they could destroy the Bible. This, you know, the Roman world was the, was the world, you know, back then. And if they could destroy the Bible, then they felt like they could destroy Christianity. And one biblical historian wrote this about the times in which he lived. He's recording the times in which he lived, and he, and he, and he, and he writes this, and I quote. He said, royal edicts were published everywhere, commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and that the scriptures destroyed by fire, end quote. He went on to say that if if somebody had a copy of the scriptures and did not surrender that copy of the Bible to be burned. And if it was discovered, that person would be killed. Furthermore, if anybody knew of somebody that had a Bible and they didn't turn them in, then that person could be killed as well. During this time, many, many, many hundreds of thousands, whatever, copies of the Bible were burned. But there were some who would laborious, laboriously write in longhand, copy the word of the Lord, as all these Bibles were being burned. And even some that they wrote would be found, thrown into the fire. Of this period of time, one historian by the name of Newman says this, and I quote, he says, multitudes hastened to deny the faith and to surrender their copies of the scripture. But many more bore the most horrible tortures and refused with their last breath to surrender the scriptures or in any other way compromise themselves. And this edict that was causing all these churches to be torn down and all these Bibles to be burned, it was enforced for several years until a new ruler came to 
power. And this one, but before this new ruler came to power, before this old ruler was about to go, he, he makes this boast, this one who had caused all these Bibles to be burned and churches to be raised to the ground. He, he makes this boast, and I quote, he said, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. But the Bible tells us that then there became the next ruler, and he was a man by the name of Constantine. And Constantine became a Christian. And as he became a Christian, he desired for, the, for copies of Scripture to be made available to all the churches. But he didn't know if there were any Scriptures, Bibles left in the world. And so Constantine puts out a charge and an edict and throughout all the land and he asks if there are any Bibles that remain. Within 25 hours, 50 copies of the Bible were brought to him. Now think about that. There were probably how many hundreds of thousands of Bibles and it got less and less and less. And you got people in dark rooms, in basements, by candlelight, writing, looking, writing, by longhand, writing the word of the Lord. Because they don't know if there's going to be any Bibles left. And it gets down to 50, we probably have 50 Bibles in the church tonight. Fifty Bibles. But 50 is not zero. <laughs> and 50 turned into 100, and 100 turned into 1,000. and we had, It got low, but it didn't die. Why? Because when God predestinates something, hell cannot stop it. The enemy cannot destroy the word of the Lord. And it didn't matter that the enemy thought that they had completely exterminated the Bible from the face of the earth. You cannot stop the church that God has established. And I am a part of that church. And you are a part of that church. Ha. Can I tell you one more story? A man by the name of, thank you, I'll tell you. <laughs> a man by the name of Voltaire, some of you might have heard of him. The noted French infidel, didn't believe in God, was a hater of the Christians. Who he, this man, in the 1700s, he made his attempt to destroy all the Bibles of the land. He boldly made the prediction that within 100 years, the Bible and Christianity would be swept from existence and into oblivion. But Voltaire's efforts and his bold prophecy failed as miserably as all the other ones failed. In fact, when his hundred-year prophecy came to be, when the hundred years came up, when he said that Christianity and the Bible would be non-existent, hear me, the very printing press upon which Voltaire had printed his devilish literature was now being used to print the Bible. <laughs> 
Woo! And afterwards, hear me, the very house in which his boastings took place, Voltaire, his house where he, he, where he boasted that Christianity was going to come to nothing and all the Bibles were going to be destroyed. In his very house, they stacked Bibles in every room by the Geneva Bible Society. They printed so many of them and they stored them in his house. Why? Because the church is a powerful force. That nothing and no one can ever stop what God has established. It will move forward. Church, I'm closing. But we're not just a part of a religion. And we're not just a part of some organization. And we're not just a part of a group of people that come together on Sundays. The church is not a building. But the church is the called out ones. It is the ecclesia. It is the people of the church. It is you. And it is I. And therefore hear me under the anointing of the Holy Ghost. If we are the church. And if the church cannot be stopped. Then that means you and I cannot be stopped. Because it's not an organization. It's the people that make up the church. And if the church cannot be stopped, then that means I cannot be stopped. So we stand to your feet. Church, we need to start operating with a revelation that we are a people that have an unstoppable, we have a miraculous, we have the life-changing power of God coursing through our veins and we cannot be stopped doing what God has called us to do. There's no devil in hell that can stop us. Come on, somebody lift up your hands. Woo. Wherever we go, the spirit realm takes notice. Wherever we are, the enemy has to flee. There is life in our words. There is power in our prayer. There is healing in our touch. There is deliverance in our hands. We cannot be stopped. You're a part of that church. Come on, somebody, come on right now. Get a revelation. You're a part of the church of the living God. Come on, I want us to gather around the altar for a few moments right now. I want somebody to come down here. I want you.